gentlemen, welcome to the Evening Jumps. Any of y'all watch High Noon on Wednesday? Anybody? So, like, this thing happened. I won $100. If you haven't seen it, recommend you Google it up. Check out at High Noon on ESPN. Hashtag High Noon. So I'm sitting on the set, right? And we had this question that we were going to talk about with uh, Vernon Davis. Where Vernon Davis had offered to do it on the team, $10,000, uh, if he could say the alphabet backwards. All right. And so right like before we go on the air, producer get in my ear, and he's like, yo, why don't you hear Pablo, you know, with some, you know, you went to Harvard. Can you do this? And I'm like, nah, come on. That's not fair, right? Like most people can't pull that off. I don't want to put him in a position to basically – I didn't like the idea of just going out here, like trying to embarrass that dude. That wouldn't be right. Like it's, it's not safe to presume anybody can do that. So, you know, Harvard or no Harvard, that's not appropriate. So I was like, nah. So I guess they then decided to ask me if I could do it. And I, I can. And so the question came, Pablo said he won't put $10,000 on the table, but he would put a card on the table. If I could say the alphabet backwards. And I was like, nah, 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 nah. Put something on the table. And so he put 20 on the table. And while he's doing that, I could see in his wallet. See, y'all couldn't see in his wallet on TV. So I could see in his wallet. And I saw, you know, appeared to be a, a, a gang of 20s. You know? So when I put $100 on the table, I'll do it. I'm like, I'll get you after the show. Because I ain't had no cash on me. I'm like, I'll get you after the show. Put 100 on it. And I'll do it. And he put the $100 on the table. And after he put the $100 on the table... It went like this. Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-I-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. I got you. Like, I just right before we came out here, I got you, man. I practiced that for a long time. I think I got around the like, maybe like G and when it got to G I think that's when Pablo realized that this is actually going to happen and then I got my hundred dollars and I think for a second Pablo thought I was going to give that hundred dollars back that was never going to happen under any circumstance whatsoever so anyway, I walked out with a hundred. He still owed me twenty. Long story, but I walked out of there with the hundo. Stopped, made a little purchase with twenty. Then me and my brother went out to dinner. Tab came to like thirty. We were splitting it. We each put a twenty down. A little bit over the standard twenty percent on the tip. You dig? Bow. So I put that twenty down there. Did a couple other things with it. But I had fun with the $100. I really did. And when I get my other 20 after we come back to work, I'll let you know the fun that I had with that other 20. It was a joy. I wouldn't want to work with me either. Let's get to the questions. Did you listen to much of Aretha Franklin's music, given that she influenced so many that came after her? Would you rank her around the top? for female African-American singers. 
Uh, now, our buddy John asked that question. And, John, I imagine that you are, if I'm not mistaken, aren't you in Australia or something like that? Are you not from the United States? Um, let me let me just say this. There is, I repeat, no reason to use the qualifier African-American singer when you're talking about Aretha fucking Franklin. Can you tell me who this white singer is that is in the same ballpark as Aretha Franklin? Right. Like, 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 why would you position the question like that? I don't know why you limit it to African-American females. I don't know why you would limit it to females, like at least as far as the United States goes. There is not a better singer that was produced than Aretha Franklin. Like, that is your number one. You can get some other people in that are maybe like, you know, you'll talk about. Like Patti LaBelle, a really, really good singer. Ronnie Isley, a really, really, really good singer. Nobody is in the ballpark of Aretha Franklin. That's it. I know people will probably talk about, like, you know, Mahalia Jackson if you want to go back. But even then, I feel like that I don't think there's a song in the Mahalia Jackson catalog that Aretha Franklin can't sing. There are songs in the Aretha Franklin catalog that I don't think Mahalia Jackson can sing. And I did. My man said, I wear, Lamar asked if I wear Ron Isley third. I think Ron Isley is the best male singer for me. Like, favorite male? Ron Isley is number one there. I was just throwing names out. It wasn't a damn list. But anyway, yeah, so John says, so pretty much go. What do you pretty? No, I feel like you don't be listening. Yes. Like, it is Aretha Franklin, and then we get down to everybody else. Now, there have been a few things that I've found interesting in the reception that Aretha Franklin has received since she has died. Um, I think that it is wildly, and I don't even know if ironic is the right way to put it, because to be fair, the people who are writing these wonderful things about Aretha Franklin are of a different generation. But if an Aretha Franklin clone was dropped off into 2018, right, and is in her early to mid-20s, what radio station are we getting her music played on? Is there one? Because, like, you can find a place to put Adele singing the way Adele sings, but I don't really see no whole lot of place for no black woman singing the way that, you know, singing that well, just singing in general. Like, where's the place? So we go sit out here and we all going to talk about how much we love Aretha Franklin, how dope Aretha Franklin was and everything else. And there is zero room for another Aretha Franklin in, like, the uh, at the front of the pop landscape right now, at least as far as I can tell. If I'm missing something, you let me know. Because I don't want to be that person. But if I am missing something, you let me know. I can't think of. Now, Jimmy's in the chat room saying, I thought Van Morrison was your favorite singer. What did what did you just say? Favorite. That does not mean that Van Morrison is a better singer than Aretha Franklin. It does not. People are saying, Whitney Houston got to be in the conversation. What, the conversation for second place? Maybe. But you want like you want to know the difference between Aretha Franklin and Whitney Houston? It, it's really to me, it's not that difficult. Whitney Houston had a voice that was so overpowering, and she could really, really, really nail it if you needed somebody just to put just to mash the gas and go. Right? Aretha had wiggle to it, man. Like there was a side to side that went in there, and she could just drop in and flutter and go up and down. Like there's nothing that you could ask her to do 
that could not be done. I don't feel that same way about Whitney Houston. That's part of why some of Whitney Houston's, like, some of the different things that Whitney tried at different points were somewhat awkward to me. Because, um, like, you sit up there to sing, like, saving all my love for you and stuff like that. Or you structure songs like I want to dance with somebody and things like that. Like, you could get the place where Whitney could go. But there's a softness that Aretha Franklin had that Whitney Houston simply did not. She just didn't. No, this is this is number one. This is it. Now, what at one point I was going to make, though, about the way that I see that it's gone in the coverage, something that's kind of like, I don't even know if ironic is the right way to put it. But we have to, Aretha Franklin is very, 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 very popular among the baby boomers. That's why you're going to hear people talk about, like, her significance to American life when people talk about her. Because she she is in a very solid place with the generation that really, really takes pride in talking about what is or is not a part of American life. Like, in a way, I don't know if subsequent generations are going to care about. I don't see Generation X being so caught up in talking about how, like, when Eddie Vedder dies, I don't feel like those people are going to be trying to explain to you the role that Eddie Vedder played in what, like, America is. But for the baby boomers, all the rock and roll era stuff exists in that space. Now, to me, what is kind of ironic about the rock and roll era is that this thing really jumps off in the United States when, when the British start getting their thing going. And what wound up happening is this crazy, ironic thing of white Americans learning about black music from British dudes. Because rather than simply try to whitewash the African-American influences in their music and act like it didn't happen, Led Zeppelin notwithstanding, they embraced it. Like the Rolling Stones talk about how shocked they were the first time they came to the United States and the first time they met like Chuck Berry and those guys and they expected to get here and see that their heroes were being treated like heroes only to find out that wasn't the way that America worked. So a whole lot of people, like a whole lot of Americans, learned about Chuck Berry from who? From the Beatles. Learned about Muddy Waters from who? The Rolling Stones. And so in the process of learning about African-American music from the Brits, they also learned about stuff like Aretha Franklin, Otis Red, right? Like those things happen. The Motown thing starts going like all of this in the same era of time. And so there is a huge space that Aretha Franklin occupies in America, largely because of great timing. Now, that's not to say, again, that she is not the baddest singer this country has ever produced. But if we drop Aretha Franklin off and introduce her to the world in the 1970s, does it go the same way? Are we talking about it the same way when she dies? Probably not. Like, as far as widespread American critical acclaim for soul music and R&B, does it not, like, really stop, like, at the end of the 1960s? Like, if people were, if you had not been introduced to the public by the end of the 1960s, could you really get to that, like, pantheon place? Could it be done? I don't. 
don't really think so. Like, you got anybody that we can name? Because we'll talk about Patti LaBelle being in the same class as Whitney Houston as a singer, but it ain't going to be like this when Patti LaBelle dies. It ain't going to be like this when Shaka Khan dies. It wasn't like this when Whitney Houston died. Right. You know, it's a confluence of a lot of circumstances. Another part of it is the power of the music press at the time, and I think the way that music press took a lot of its cues from what those 1960s artists said that they really liked. Like, it all goes together. As somebody mentioned, I guess Beyonce is somebody when we talk about, like, the role in American life. And maybe, I guess it remains to be seen how they're going to treat things um, all the way down the line. But there's an appreciation for Aretha Franklin that I'm glad that people have that they would not have had if things broke just a little bit differently. Just a little differently. Wouldn't have gone the same way. It would not have. Now, as far as like the actual music goes, catalog's a little up and down at points, but the highs are so high and there are so, 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 so many highs. But like you can point out the fact that it's somewhat inconsistent. You don't need to be hyperbolic. Like as I was about on Twitter talking about there wasn't no bad Aretha Franklin songs. I was like, oh, you ain't looking that hard. They're there. It's just that the other stuff is so cold that it's just like, oh, okay, cool. So that's what it is. Got it. Take it. But before I did this show, I was listening to uh, Lady Soul on the record player. And I was just thinking about it because the band is incredible. And the line of notes point out like a strong number of heavy hitters that are on that bad boy. Can you imagine what an intimidating and daunting proposition it must be when they're like, hey, you're going to be in Aretha Franklin's band? And I say that because no matter how good you are. So like I look at the line of notes on Lady Soul. Uh, Bobby Womack plays a lot of guitar on there. There is a song that Eric Clapton is on. Like, what's it got to be like to be Eric Clapton and show up and know before you get there that you are not the coldest person in this band? Because you know who the coldest person in the band is. It's Aretha. And I imagine that Aretha ain't really have no time for you to get your shit into gear. Like, just get there. Like, that, that is my guess on what it is, like, playing for Aretha Franklin. Like, I'm not saying she's going so far as, like, James Brown and finding people. But still, I can't imagine what a Dalton proposition that is. I cannot. But, yeah, like, I can give you the obvious. People who are looking for, like, recommendations and stuff like that, I think I could probably give you the obvious ones. Like, the trilogy of albums, I think, for Aretha Franklin to check out is uh, Lady Soul, I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You and uh, Young Gibson and Black. Like, th- those are the strong three. Uh, I got a Spotify playlist that's not intended to be comprehensive, but I think it's a good list. And Lance, you drop that in the chat room. That would be very helpful. So, yeah, man. Read the, read the bad as hell. Ain't no other way of saying it. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else you got here. Somebody asked me what I think about my alma mater running out of housing for their students. Dude, I don't work there. I don't know. What you want me to say? Is there anything more barbershop than an argument about who should about whether Holly Berry should play Aretha in a movie that gets so heated that someone gets shot? Yeah, this happened in uh, Suffolk, Virginia. There's an argument about whether uh, Holly Berry is playing Whitney Houston in a movie about Aretha Franklin, which, by the way, is something that Aretha Franklin wanted. He wanted, uh, yeah, man. 
Uh, yeah, she wanted that. Um, anyway, somebody wound up getting smoked. And you're saying, is that the most barbershop thing ever? How about let's talk about suggesting that Holly Berry play Aretha Franklin in the movie, how that might be the most Aretha Franklin thing ever. How about that? Like, what I love about Aretha Franklin wanting that is Aretha Franklin is not saying Holly Berry reminds me of myself. She's not saying I think Holly Berry can sing. She's saying I want people to see Holly Berry play me in the movie. Like, I don't think that this is about any sort of personal attachment or kinship in that way. She's like, nah, I think that would be a good look. And keep it real, if, like, Aretha wasn't still alive or something like, well, at the time, but if you push that enough down the line, you trick people into thinking Aretha Franklin looked like somebody else. That's how this works. People do it all the time. Didn't they try to have Zoe Saldana play Anita Simone? Yeah, man. Appreciate the question. I'll do this. First, Fuji's going to break up. Now, High Noon is cut to 30 minutes. Can you speak at all about the ESPN lineup changes? I mean, what do you want me to say? Hey, man, I come to work one day. They're like, yo, things are changing. Okay. It's whatever. Uh, as I explained to people before, if when I was working on getting this TV show, if they had told me it's only going to be 30 minutes, I wouldn't have been like, give me an hour or I quit. No, it's changing it up. All right. So we used to do a show for 30 minutes. Now we're going to do a show for an hour. Guess what? That bad boy going to slap regardless. So, I mean, I just really, like, straight up, I just don't. I think other people care about this way more than I do, at least in terms of, like, what does it mean and everything else? I don't know. I got a contract. Appreciate the question. Somebody put in here, did you watch the unreleased Quincy Jones interview saying Prince is an okay musician? And I'm questioning the definition of unreleased. Wow. It's really mediocre questions in here today. Oh, this is a good one, though. As someone who's going into grad school for the first time this fall, would you? what advice, if any, would you offer other first-time grad students? This is the best advice I can give you about going to graduate school. And this is the most important thing for you to know while you are doing it. Because some people might let you know this, some might not. But you need to know this walking in. Everyone else is miserable, too. Everyone else is struggling, too. It is really hard for everyone else. Like, that is one of the most important things for you to get, is that grad school is like a war of attrition in a lot of ways. And it beats a lot of people down. Like, I don't know if you're going for a master's or a PhD. If you're going for a PhD, it's a haze, baby. Everybody's going through the same haze. Like, just don't let the fact that it's hard. Like, you can't take that as an attack on your ego. That's the biggest thing. It's hard for everybody. It's meant to be hard. Now, the thing is, it's hard in a way that, like, I don't think anybody can tell you and make you believe it. But it is. That's what it's going to be. This is not an extension of college. Like, what, however it was that you worked to get it done in college, that's probably not going to get it done in grad school. It's probably not. You're probably going to have to step your game up in a way that you didn't think was possible. But guess what? No matter what else you're going to be doing at this point, you're going to have to do that anyway. So just don't take it too personally when it gets hard. Appreciate the question. Let's see what else we got here. How absurd is it to spend $12,000 
on a new hairline and still need to come home after spending $12,000. I imagine that you were talking about that dude uh, that used to kick it with Nicki Minaj. Nicki Minaj said that she spent them $1,000 on getting him a new hairline and he still his hairline is still a problem. And I think it should be noted here, you can't get mad at Safari for spending $12,000 on a new hairline and the hairline still being gone because Safari didn't spend $12,000 on the hairline. Nicki Minaj spent $12,000 on the hairline. Now, as for the question as to whether or not it is absurd to spend $12,000 on a new hairline, I am not trying to stun on you at this moment, but all that tells me is that you don't have $12,000. And look, I've seen the studies. Most people don't have $12,000, all right? But I can speak to you as somebody who's got $12,000. I am not a cheater. I don't believe in cheating. When it's time for me to come home, I came home. I did that. I'm good with it. But if I would have had $12,000 and they would have told me that I could have stopped that before anybody noticed and still rock that thing out, I'm telling you now, I would have considered it. And not only would I have considered it, there may have been things that stopped me from doing it. But let me tell you what would not be one of those things to stop me. That's right. $12,000. This watch I got on right now. It didn't cost $12,000, but it didn't cost that much less. You telling me a watch is better than a fully functioning hairline? Like, think about that for a second, right? And I ain't saying that as a flex. I'm really not. I am saying that just to make you understand that if you have $12,000, but you do not have a hairline, that trade is probably a no-brainer. A no-brainer. Like, if somebody were to tell you, look, man, you got a choice. I can give you this watch or I can make sure your hairline be straight forever and nobody know why. Which one you take? You tell me, which one you take? That's right. Lance over here talking about the watch. Yeah, Lance, you talking about the watch because you're not out here living the life that some of us got to be out here living. You don't know nothing about that. Anyway, I'm just saying, paying $12,000 for that, not terribly absurd. Appreciate the question. Hey, why not stay on theme? As a man going bald, how hard was it to commit to the ball? Not at all. Not at all. I didn't feel like going to the barbershop no more. So I just went ahead and did it when I moved to Miami. It wasn't difficult, but I'm cool. Like, I mean, I knew I'd be straight. I did the bald head thing in high school when it was simply fashionable. I knew I'd be fine. But no thing. I don't know about you, though. Your shit might be lumpy. Appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. Dude, I hear name your favorite sneaker of all time and why. Fuck, are you asking me two-part questions? 
How bad of a sign is it for Nicki Minaj that her Twitter beefs have gotten more attention than her album? So I want to give you something to think about here with Nicki Minaj. And you help me out with this. When's the last time with Nicki Minaj that it was about her music? All right, because I maybe I don't traffic in the spaces where like she really does damage. So I'm not I'm not the right person to speak to how like ubiquitous or whatever that she actually is. But this hit me. I was in Atlanta over the weekend and I'm riding around and the DJ on the radio is like, all right, we're going to hit you with, I don't know, like throwback jam of the day or something like that, like the old school jam. And it was bees in the trap. And I was like, yo, I mean, by what measure is that like old school or whatever? And so while I still don't believe that that should qualify as like a throwback jam, it did come out in 2012. Like that's a long time ago. And I don't really know like how much stuff that she's done since then that was like really killing the game like that. Like I say, maybe I'm just not paying attention in that way. But as far as I can tell, it ain't really been about her music for a long time. It hasn't. Like, I know about the boyfriends, you know, but it ain't really been about her music. So, like, what does it say that her Twitter beefs are a bigger deal than her album? I'm sincerely asking, is that anything new? All right, appreciate the question. Let's see what else we got here. You happy to have the Black Civil War back? Ah, yes, Insecure is back on HBO. Black Civil War airs on Sunday, and then it's Projection Monday on the timeline. People get out there calling themselves, talking about that show. They talking about their lives. That's what happens with Insecure. We've seen this in multiple seasons, and now we are back here. Am I happy to have it back? I have to say, I did not hate watch the first episode. That's a step up. I found myself really hating the characters last season. I didn't really find myself in that place watching the first episode. I found myself more in line and seeing the confusion of the characters that are there. And remember, those characters are supposed to be, like, younger than me. Like, I can't be looking at them to be doing things in the way that somebody my age would do them. That's not what those characters are supposed to be. Um, I will say this though. I don't know who like Issa Rae be kicking it with. And this is what I mean when I say I don't know who Issa Rae be kicking it with. So it got the scene in the lift, right? The buddy gets in the lift and he's in the car and he pulls out a blunt and he starts splitting the blunt. Now, from what I understand, the way that goes is you then like have that paper and you use that paper as a rolling paper. But uh, Insecure, they had that dude split that thing. And then after it was split, it was like immediately a blunt there. What happened to the tobacco that was in that initially? And I realized if there's anything unrealistic about this show, it's LA. It's 2018, 
Issa rolling with a squad of Betamaxes. You remember that from last season? Issa rolling with a squad of Betamaxes. And not a single person on that show, not even the white girls that work in that nonprofit office, none of them are smoking legal California weed. And that's why I'm asking who Issa Rae be kicking it with. Like, not one person. And again, and somebody said something about editing with the blunt scene in the back seat. The editing story don't work. How long was that lift ride supposed to be in the first place? Did Molly have somewhere to be? Like, how long was that supposed to be? Right, right. Last season, everybody was all caught up that times they had that scene and they did not use condoms because it went so fast and they said that that was implied. You ain't even have to give that story. That just happened. They used to live together. I know how that goes. But on this, nah, 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 nah. This is just, this is just shoddy worksmanship. There's just no other way to put that. That was just shoddy. But anyway, yeah, on the show itself, though, no, I actually thought that was like a very good episode. I thought it was pretty well done, and I thought it had some chuckles. Because if there's one thing I do feel like this show can lack at times, it's chuckles. And I thought that's what we get, what, what people was here for in the first place. Appreciate the question. Let me see what's going on here. Somebody else asking me about CAU's problem with lack of housing. What am I supposed to say? What do you, what do you think about it? It's messed up. Jacob Pablo's money was the easiest hundred dollars you've ever made. What the hardest? I mean, I would imagine the hardest hundred dollars I ever made had to be when I was working at Fuddruckers in high school. I was making four dollars and eighty cents an hour. That had to be it. Carrying them trays and dishes and wiping down them tables and all that. Yeah, that's probably the hardest hundred dollars I ever. That that would be it. Working at Fuddruckers in high school. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else we got here. Do you think Facebook and Google should be entrusted to regulate content slash speech? What does that even mean? Like, should they be entrusted to regulate content and speech? It's a little late for that, buddy. You already did it. Like, once we decided that we were going to use social media platforms as our news aggregators, this is what happened. There's kind of no way around that. Like, I remember many years ago, I read this blog post that Mark Cuban did, and it was very interesting, and it was an important one for me to understand kind of where the game was going. And so what Cuban talked about in that blog post was he was like, he was looking at his internet traffic. He was like, yo, man, this traffic isn't coming from Google anymore. This traffic is coming from Facebook. And so what that meant, by and large, was that personal recommendation was changing the game. Going on Google is like looking in the yellow pages. You know, going on Facebook and Twitter and seeing what your people are talking about, that's different. That was much different. And people had more trust in what their friends told them or what the people they knew were telling them than they had in just going and thumbing through the yellow pages. That made perfect sense, right? And it helped explain really the direction that we've gone in with these things. The problem is, how people deem something trustworthy stopped being for a lot of them about the veracity of the information and became about just like whether they liked it or whether, you know, whether, whether they agreed with it. And that's how they deemed whether or not it was trustworthy. And so that has led to this place now where people are passing stuff around 
And their initial question about it is not whether it's legit. It's just whether they like it. And so once you understand that that's how people operate, then what you do is you feed them more stuff that they agree with. And what happens after you feed them more stuff that they agree with is they'll feed each other. Like you only got to do it one time. They'll feed each other. And then this stuff goes all over the place while staying within these platforms. And so what folks like Facebook have had to contend with is that their platform has kind of been exploited in that way. So what are they supposed to do? They decided they wanted to take on these media companies, basically. They decided that they wanted to be a media outlet. They decided they wanted to be the one to disseminate the information. Well, now you got to be responsible for what information is being disseminated. And it's harder and harder for them as a platform to be like, it's not us that's doing it. It's the users that are doing it. Like, that's not really holding water for people anymore. So, hell yeah, it's okay for them to regulate what people are putting on their platform. The platform is theirs. Yeah, they get to do that. Yeah. They have a responsibility for it. So the guys asking me, should we trust Facebook uh, to regulate content and speech? What, do you trust them not to? Like, do you trust what it is that they don't? But it's a stupid question to ask whether Facebook should be trusted to regulate speech. Like, the, the people we say who can't regulate speech are the go- is the government. That's who we talk about. Like, they can't regulate speech. But if you own a website, you get to regulate speech. Right. So they just throw it out here as an example, like Vox. Not using it for any reason. It just came off the top of my head. So let's say Vox. Vox regulates what people put on their platform. Now, granted, they pay the people who are on their platform. Right. But if a writer works for Vox, you regulate what that person puts up. Facebook is putting up other people's stuff. But hell, yeah, they get to regulate it. Should they be? A... Oh, boy. Appreciate the question. Uh, I'll go to another question. This guy says, did you like the Houston influence on Travis Scott's new album, Astroworld? I mean, for one, I haven't heard it, but I don't feel like it's Houston influence. If the dude is actually from Houston, you know? All right, let me see what else we got here. Some of you guys don't know we don't do uh, sports questions here. Ralph Wiley once said you were a dangerous writer. So how come you don't write anymore? Because I don't feel like it. That's really it. I don't feel like it. And look, you got to understand, man, I get lectured by so many people about not writing. And I have to admit, I'm due to write because I I definitely try to write at least once a year. I really want to try to write like once a quarter, but I can't let a whole year pass without me writing something. And so I guess at some point I'm going to need to write something. I thought about writing something on Aretha, but the truth is, like, my knowledge on her is not encyclopedic enough for me to feel confident wading into these waters right now. Like, people are out here writing some incredible things about Aretha Franklin. You never know. But, yeah, nah, like, people out here doing really cold stuff on Aretha. Like, when I wrote on Bowie and when I wrote on Prince, I was like, I can go out here and I can make this happen. But there's some topics I'm not going to approach unless I know when I sit down I'm capable of doing, like, not just capable, but it is likely that I will produce something that I believe is great. 
I'm really not interested in producing something that's just kind of good. Like it's kind of a Dr. Dre situation at this point. Um, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it big. And so, yeah, whoever it is, I've, I've said this before, it is the Andre 3000 approach. I've used those exact words. Do a verse or two a year, but make sure they fire. All right, here we go. Is Omarosa allowed at cookouts if she brings Trump down or has that ship said regardless? I don't know nothing about that, right? I, feel, I Here's the thing, though, I tell you about Omarosa. I don't know who it is you think at the cookout actually going to keep Omarosa out. Omarosa got tape recorded in the Situation Room. Omarosa want to get in. Omarosa going to get in. And not only – here's the other thing about Omarosa in the cookout. Omarosa is – if she's coming to the cookout, she's not coming to the cookout alone. She's coming with a date. Wasn't she messing with that dude from the Green Mile? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Omarosa ain't showing up by herself. I, I, I worry about you. If you get caught at a bar and Omarosa come and try to holler at you – you might be going down. Like, just so you know, this is the only point I have to make about Omarosa. Because, you know, I don't really like to get into these political things like that. What I have learned this week is that Omarosa is a one-name star. And, I mean, it almost seems kind of obvious because for most people, the one name is all they know because reality shows operate really on the one-name program. Though I didn't think there was any reason for Omarosa to conceal her last name. Your first name is Omarosa. Ain't too many of them in the phone book, right? Um, She is a one-name star. Like, all these people who have had these different things to say about what's going on with the president and everything else that worked around it, none of them are more famous than Omarosa. Not a single one. She is a legit one-name star. And that's why they are able to get her booked on all these television shows, all these morning shows, everybody else is taking her, their audience knows who she is. And that I don't think anybody really involved in this properly. She was more famous than any of those other people. And whether people think she's credible or not, what she says travels to more places because she is a one Name star. But all right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on the Evening Jones. Try to do this thing here once a week, somewhere in there, whatever best we can. My man Lance Gilliam had everything behind the scenes. Thank you. Remember, if you cannot watch the Evening Jones live, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the iTunes store, subscribe at Stitcher Radio. Check us out at SoundCloud. You can also find us at the Google Play Store. Talk to you guys soon. Take it easy. <laughs>